0: Rooftop of the Herman London Real Estate Group in beautiful downtown Maplewood. It's the St. Louis Realtor Podcast with your host, Adam Cruz. Welcome, welcome everybody to this week's podcast. Today is, I think, Tuesday, October 28th, a couple days before Halloween. I hope you've got your costumes ready. Today's podcast is possibly going to be a long one. We've got a couple different guests in here. I'm really excited. We're going to have Trey Malakote come in pretty soon. I keep calling him our office's communication guru. You know, he's my mentor my coach and he he helps with our agents um, we're going to talk about some problems that i've been seeing lately on deals we've been doing with loan commitment dates i'm going to talk a little bit about working with the realtor if you're going to buy a new construction home or build a home i want to share a lesson that i learned this week in a deal that i was doing i'm going to get real detailed and go through the numbers of a two-family building that i'm considering purchasing with a friend rant a little bit about how it's not all about the money with an underline under the word all there of course and i already mentioned we're gonna have trey come in and then last but not least we're gonna have john charlton come in and give us a little update on some loan stuff so i'm gonna jump right into talking about working with a realtor for new construction I was out of town this weekend. I've been working with a few buyers, a couple, and we've been looking at homes all over the kind of Baldwin, Fenton area. And, you know, we've been looking at existing homes. We've been talking about new construction, though, because I think that's really what they're going to want. The homes that we walk into that are basically brand new are really what seems to excite them. And so we've been looking at different options for builders, you know, build on an existing lot, buy a house, tear it down, build a brand new house. Or find a house in a subdivision somewhere that a builder owns the entire subdivision and You know hire that builder to build a home there Uh, while I was out of town. They went to a Subdivision and they found basically fell in love with homes that could be built There was one already built there and I just want to talk a little bit about working with the realtor When you're buying a new construction home first of all should you work with the realtor when you're buying new construction? of course, I'm going to say yes, but I think that it's for lots of different reasons. It's not necessarily just for negotiation because negotiating with the builder on a new construction home can be a little bit complex. Sometimes you can negotiate the price of the home. Sometimes you can negotiate some of the upgrades like you know, upgrading the flooring. Sometimes you can negotiate things like the lot premiums, that type of thing. There's some negotiating to be done, uh, but you know your realtor can help you with that. And like I would say to any buyer that's buying a property, it's kind of like, why not work with a realtor? Why not have someone on your side representing you, helping you through the process that you're not paying them anyway? So uh, when you do go to a builder site, if you're if you're not with your realtor, make sure that you tell the builder that you are working with the realtor and sign them in. You, they all have little cards that you fill out and just put on there, yes, I'm working with the realtor and here's their name. Um, and the realtor basically can help you understand the process. The The builder's going to put a lot of things in front of you, and there's a lot of numbers to throw at you. Um, one example is talking about lot premiums. So my buyer was like, yeah, yeah, what's, a, what's that? What's a lot premium? And essentially, every builder does things a little bit differently. But when you see a sign that says, new homes can be built here from the 400s type of thing, you're probably not going to pay 400 for that house. You know, you might end up paying... 450, but you could do updates that might turn it into a $600,000 home, depending on what you want to do. Do you want to add a third car garage, whatever, or are you gonna? The example of the lot premiums are the builder might charge extra for certain lots in the subdivision if they are overlooking water, or if they have a walkout, or if they back to the golf course instead of backing to the woods, or or that type of thing. So, I mean, you use a realtor to help you buy an existing home you know, show you the homes, negotiate the deal, work you through inspections, understanding financing and all that stuff. I think it only makes sense to use a realtor to help you buy a new construction home that includes all the things I just mentioned, plus all the details that go into building a home, negotiating all that. What upgrades should I do? You know, as an example, you want to custom tailor the home to be comfortable for you and your family so you're going to enjoy living there. But there's some upgrades that I suggest that you don't do. You know, we were looking through a home recently that the guy who built it had really, really custom tailored it to himself. So he turned one of the third bedrooms into a much smaller bedroom, basically only big enough for his tanning bed to fit in there. I guess he was a single guy, a bachelor, and he wanted a tanning bed. So was that a smart move for him? Maybe. I guess he really likes it. But for a resale, definitely not, because my clients were like, absolutely not. This home won't work for us because it's not really a third bedroom. So there's some updates that you really don't want to make that will, you know, make de sort of devalue the home or make it not a great resale property. But there's some that you might make, like if you can add a three car garage at this time, say for $10,000 or $12,000, it might be a really smart move to do now because you can't really add a third car garage to the house six years from now when you're going to sell the home. So. Uh, that's what my commentary about working with a tour for building new construction next up I guess I'm gonna talk about my lesson learned of the week you know I, I try to be humble so I can share examples of mistakes that I made and uh, my lesson that I learned this week is to be specific and I already knew this I already t- I always tell my agents when we're doing training be specific tell you know try to be as extremely clear as you can let's solve problems before they happen let's let's make sure everyone knows what's going on so you don't have to fight it later so on our sales contract there is a paragraph called inclusions and basically most of the things in the home like the stove and the light fixtures and the garage door opener and all that stuff is considered to be real property it's not personal property it automatically goes with the home but then there's a few things that you have to be specific about for example the washing machines for example the refrigerator For example, a flat screen TV if you want it. And your realtor should really write in there those specific things. Now, I always write in all present and existing fixtures and appliances convey. Most of the time, I'll also then write comma washer, comma dryer, comma refrigerator, right? Being specific. But to me, the words all and the words existing in the words appliances is pretty specific basically all appliances that are in the home when we wrote our contract convey meaning pass on to the with the home to the new owner but in this case we went to a final walkthrough I'm sorry in this case I didn't write refrigerator I didn't write washer and dryer and we went to the final walkthrough and the washer and dryer were not in the home but the refrigerator still was so I called the agent and said hey The washer and dryer are not here and they're supposed to stay. And she said, no, they're not. They're not supposed to stay. And so we had to debate that topic, I guess you could say. And my point was, it's very specific. The word all existing appliances convey is very specific. Her point was, well, that's not very specific because that could include the toaster. It could include the blender. It could include everything. Of course, I'm like, yeah, it does. And you're lucky we're not asking for the toaster. But. Anyway, we ended up getting it worked out the, you know, ultimately we wanted to do what was best for the clients. Um, the seller had already sold the washer machine, uh, the washer and dryer. So we had to get them a new washer dryer. The, the sellers ultimately did that, but it would have been a problem that wouldn't have happened. I could have solved the problem before it happened. If I would have done what I normally do, which is right in there, washer, comma, dryer, comma, refrigerator. So in the future, I might even be more specific. Kenwood washer whirlpool dryer you know LG refrigerator in the kitchen just to really clear up any issues the tv in the basement that type of thing so we, we might even be more specific but my, my lesson learned was be specific you know I don't need to be just saying all present and existing fixtures and appliances convey I can also add in the refrigerator the washer dryer just so everyone really knows what's going on because ultimately even if I was right you know, we want to make sure that everyone's happy and there's no reason to, to have the sellers be unhappy. And, and, you know, they kind of felt tricked, I think. And that certainly wasn't my intention, but anyway, lesson learned, be specific. And there's a lot of different things on the deal that we can be specific about. And I think that it just helps everyone to kind of have a good feelings about the deal. And when you sell a house, you want to, you want to be happy about the new buyers. And when you're buying a house, you want to feel like, you got a good deal, but you want to feel like you're buying a a happy home type of thing. So anyway, moving on from that, uh, I guess I'll talk a little bit about the problems we've had with loan commitment dates. Um, I've got a few calls from agents in the last week really that have related to loan commitment dates. Uh, And I guess actually the new term is loan contingency date. And the deal is if you, a, a loan contingency date is something that I call a, it's sort of like a problem that you only have to deal with if it becomes a problem so when you're when you're when you're writing an offer on a home and you're gonna buy the property you make it contingent on a bunch of different things inspections and loans and appraisal and insurance and reading the seller's disclosure statement those type of things and one of the things is this loan contingency date so typically the loan contingency date will be something like 10 days before closing and essentially you have until that day to be extremely comfortable that you're going to be able to get a loan on the property or else you need to get a loan denial letter and back out of the deal the problem that comes is sometimes by this loan contingency date your lender is not ready to say absolutely 100% without a doubt no questions I will give you a loan on this property and so the deal is I noticed I said we will give you a loan will we give you a loan and on this property so by now, they need to be totally comfortable with you. You've already been pre-approved, but they, you need to have gone through their underwriting system and sent them all your paycheck stubs and your bank statements and your proof of this and your proof of that. But they also need to have completed the appraisal on the property, and the appraisal need to have needs to have gone through the underwriting process too. So they say, I can absolutely give you a loan for the purchase amount, and I can absolutely give you a loan on this property. So what we've been seeing what I saw twice this week was basically today's loan contingency day. The lender says, Hey, I think we can give you a loan, but there's a couple stipulations and the agent's saying, what do we do? Do we just go on with the deal and hope that the deal goes through or that they can close on time and close it all? Or should we back out of this deal altogether? And the, the ideal thing would be to have sort of, basically dealt with this a week ago. You know, I can't, when a realtor calls me, I can't say, oh, sorry, I should have dealt with this a week ago. You know, we have to figure out a solution now, but ultimately that's what you should have done. You know, be in, be on top of keeping the deal together for your clients, talk to the lender ahead of time, make sure they're getting everything they need. If you call the lender and say, Hey, you know, loan commitments next week, how are we looking? And they say, well, your client hasn't been getting me this or that that I need then the agent can call the buyer and make sure that that's happening. But when it comes down to loan contingency date, and you have to make a a decision. Should we send over a loan denial letter, which is kind of hard to get these days, and a mutual release ending the deal? Or should we send over an amendment that extends the loan contingency date? Not necessarily extends the closing, but at least extends the loan contingency date. Or should we do both? What if I've just sent the amendment and the seller's not responding, and I'm freaking out, then what do I do now? Well, that now you're in a tough spot where you might want to send over a loan denial letter and a mutual release. But again, like I said, it's kind of hard to get a loan denial letter. It's it's a really stressful moment. And this is a problem that can be solved if you deal with it ahead of time. Making sure that everything's everyone's getting everything that they need You know, a week or two weeks before the loan contingency date, you won't be in this situation. So that's my commentary about the loan commitment date. So next up I want to talk about this two-family building that I'm considering buying with a friend of mine on the first podcast I went over a four-family building that I did buy with a friend of mine and Those numbers were so obvious so easy that it just made perfect sense and we just had to buy it or else we were crazy Now those type of deals only come around every once in a while and I don't want to only wait for that to happen before I buy real estate again, so I'm considering other options this particular Property is a duplex. It's a two-family building. It's in South City. It is currently vacant So when we walk through the property, no one's living there. There's no furniture there We were able to look at everything Do I like that? It's vacant sort of because then I can make my updates to it easily and I can charge what I consider to be Market rent, which usually we're pretty good at getting, you know, strong market rents Um, Do I wish maybe one of the units was rented so that we had some cash flow while we're rehabbing the other one? Sure But let me break down the numbers for you. I'll try to be quick. I love making a spreadsheet. So I have printed out in front of me my spreadsheet that I made. And the way I make my spreadsheets is that you can change, like, for example, the purchase price, and it'll affect all of the other numbers. But let's say that we are going to buy this property. It's an investment property. We're going to get a loan. Most lenders will require us to put down a 20% down payment, okay? And then there's two investors, myself and, an, and a friend, that would both buy the property. So what I had to figure out is how much rehab are we going to have to do to the property? How much money can we make in terms of cash flow each month? How much is going to be my out-of-pocket up front? And, and ultimately, what is our return on in our investment? So let's look at a purchase price of $100,000 for this property. It's actually listed a little bit higher than that, but let's say we can get it for a hundred. We'd have to put down a down payment of twenty thousand dollars, and we, and then I, m- I made other estimations like our estimated holding cost for six months. In this case, that is um, figuring out our mortgage payment, including principal, interest, taxes, and insurance, which I believe broke down to about six hundred and fifty dollars or so. So, our estimated holding cost for six months is six months is about forty two hundred dollars. Uh, I said a minimum holding cost, if we only had to hold it without any rent of two months, broke down to be about $1,400. And then our rehab charges, we're going to put in some new windows. We're going to do some painting, patch some of the roof, do a little bit of waterproofing to the basement. And I always, I like to be conservative. So we put in a general unknown number of $2,500. So my total rehab costs in this case was $7,300. So again, purchase price, $100,000 down payment, $20,000. Total rehab cost, $7,300, including and plus our holding costs. So my calculations say a max out-of-pocket total potential costs we could ever incur would be about thirty dollars in terms of out-of-pocket, which per investor would be about $15,700. This doesn't exactly fit into my, hey, we'll both put $10,000 into a pot and buy a property type of thing, but I have to know what the numbers are before we do it. Will we end up spending fifteenth uh, i'm sorry thirty one five on the property? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know how long our holding holding costs will be. Maybe the general unknown of twenty five hundred dollars won't have to be spent. You know there's some variables there, or maybe we could do some of the work after we have some tenants in there later, kind of thing, but I like to be conservative again, so that's the numbers we got now, running through the rest of the numbers we assuming I'm assuming we could rent both of the units out for seven hundred each. So we have a total rent of $1,400. We'd use a property manager, that. actually we'd use Herman London Property Management. And I'm just conservatively assuming they would charge us 10%. So management fee, $140. Our monthly payment is about $610. I'd like to put $100 per month into a reserve account. So every month that reserve account is building until maybe we have our six month reserve built. And I like to have money in there in case the air conditioner breaks or the toilet leaks or whatever, so we can go use that reserve money instead of using our out-of-pocket money. Um, so basically, we're for total rent fourteen hundred a month, minus the management fee, minus the monthly payment for the principal and the loan, minus the reserve amount. We're going to have a net income of five hundred fifty-two dollars. So per investor, we'd be making two hundred seventy-five dollars a month. To me, that's not that exciting, especially if I just wrote a check for $15,000. It's not that exciting to get you know, $276 in my account each month. Um, but you have to look ultimately, I guess, alt- at the return on your investment. So if we did this deal, my estimation is it will take us about 52 months to get our investment back, which is just under four and a half years. And the return on investment I'm calculating is about 21%. So... Although I don't consider $276 to be that exciting, a 21% return on investment isn't that bad of a deal. Now, will we end up buying this property or not? I'm not sure. Like I said, I prefer to just put about 10000 into a deal and not $15,000. Um, some of the considerations we have to have is the location, which it's a great location. And uh, this particular friend that I'm looking at buying this property with, I don't know how handy they are, so we might have some higher kind of rehab charges but that's our that's the deal that we're considering love to hear your feedback if we think we should do it love to hear your feedback if you want to partner on a future deal send me a message okay next up i do want to talk about so it's this kind of my rant i guess but i'm calling it it's not all about the money underlining all because it is about the money but it's just not all about the money And I kind of think that this applies to several different facets of, I guess, life, you know, whether you're talking about an investment deal, whether you're talking about the real estate company that you want to work for, whether you're talking about the job that you have available to you, I say it's not all about the money. Like I just mentioned about this investment deal, could we make a little bit more cash flow on a different property, you know, that's maybe too... uh, an area of town where there's higher turnover and lower rents we might make higher cash flow but then I'm gonna to have to drive you know 30 minutes every time there's a problem instead of driving five minutes from where it is on my house um, or is it a is it a great building that's in good condition so I don't think I'm gonna to have to do as much rehab to it over the years or do I think it's in an area where it's gonna be maybe families that live there and they might live there for 5 10 15 20 years instead of being a turnover area where there's maybe students moving in and out or people moving in and out every year. Now I have to pay to find a new tenant. Now I've got to pay to get new carpet and paint the place every single year. So there's kind of a convenience factor there and an unknown turnover factor, right? My girlfriend owns a two family building that when she bought it, there was tenants living there and the same tenants are still living there today. It's about six years later and hopefully they'll stay living there forever. Now that's great. You know, maybe that she's not getting as extreme a high rent as she could get if it was right next to Wash U and the students were paying top dollar. But what is the convenience of not having to find a new tenant every year, not having to put in new carpet and fix the property up and all that kind of thing every year? I think that that has to be considered. So with investment deals, it's not all about the money. Uh with real estate office, it's not all about the money. You can come to me one of my agents could come to me with a spreadsheet and say, looks like you're charging me this much and I can make this much at another company. And you know, that's what I'm basing my decision off of. But I have to say to that person that what is, you know, what's what's to be considered that doesn't fit onto your spreadsheet. How about the culture? How about the lifestyle? How about the friends that you've made? How about the convenience it is? How about the things that we do for you in your business? You know, uh, how about those things that don't exactly fit on a spreadsheet? And and I think that happiness is something that you can't really measure on a spreadsheet and it really has to be considered. And so then with jobs, you know, I was talking to uh, someone last night about jobs. And again, to me, it's not all about the money because someone could call me right now and say, hey, you know, this big corporate company in town wants to hire a new real estate manager guy. And they're going to pay four hundred thousand dollars a year. Do you want the job, Adam? And you know it requires you to sit at a desk for sixty hours a week. And and I would say no to that job, even though it's a lot of money. I would turn down the job because I really like doing what I do. I'm very happy with owning the Herman London Real Estate Group and my lifestyle. So again, it's not all about the money. Sometimes and I'm sort of hesitant to say this, but maybe enough money is enough money. You know so. Um, have to consider sometimes that it's not all about the money. Anyway, coming up next, we've got Trey Malicote. I mentioned him at the beginning of the podcast and I'm really excited to bring him in. He's got a lot of energy. So turn up the volume and get ready to go. Here comes Trey. All right. Well, up next here, we've got Trey Malicote. He's our office's communication guru, I like to call him. He's been putting on seminars for us and meetings and helping us with recruiting helping our agents become more successful, holding them accountable. And Trey, I have to ask you one question. What makes a successful realtor?
1: Oh man, Adam, thanks for asking me. You know, the truth of the matter is when you look at real estate agents across the United States, what I see is one clear crop of people and they are all average frustrated agents they're sitting on their heels they're waiting on something to happen and they think that real estate's an industry that you can just jump right into it and it's simple. So here is my five point tip on oh, or like my this, five like tips, this. if you will, on how to be a really fantastic real estate agent. What makes some, what makes the great great and what makes the good just kind of mediocre. Okay. Cool. Point number one, if you want to be a great real estate agent, you need a clear and simple marketing plan. It is about knowing where you need to be with whom and how you need to be having the sales conversation. So point number one, you need a clear and simple, marketing and sales plan. Number two, you need to set a schedule every day to have consistency with your prospecting. And a general rule is one hour a day will build your business. If you do two hours a day, we're in the game of volume, which leads me to point number three, deliberately intersecting with the highest number of people on a weekly slash monthly basis we're in the business of volume and so you've got to be in front of people so where are you connecting what networking meetings are you going to where are you asking your friends for referrals it's about being connected to as many people as you possibly can. Now, the fourth point I want you to think about as a great real estate agent, you need to be really great at relationships. But here's the thing. Most people think that you have to be slapping hands and kissing babies. And I think to be really great at relationships, you have to just be really interested in people. So as a good agent, let's get real interested in people. And lastly, I think the great agents, the people that are really superstars have one thing that no one else has, and that is an outstanding attitude. They stay in the game. They don't get discouraged. They focus on success and they know that if they work hard and they work their plan, they keep their head in the game, they treat people right and they intersect where they need to, they will have success beyond measure. So there you go, Adam. That's my secret tips for how to be a great agent.
0: Okay. Thanks. But don't run out the door yet (laughs) because I appreciate that. And you've been teaching us a lot of those things and this is great. I think that some of us probably know this stuff, right? A lot of realtors probably know this. Once they do know this, How do we get to the real issue? What is causing them not to do this? What are you seeing, realtors? I've heard it before. You've heard it before. Oh, I don't have my business cards, so I'll wait a week and a half until my business cards come in before I do anything. Right. Right. Or I made ten calls and not twenty because I don't have time because I've got my kids or something. Gotcha. So that's why I'm not successful. What? How do we dig deeper? Because Uh, one of the things I love about you is you help us dig deeper and get past you know, the proxy issue or whatever. Yeah, 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 that's a great
1: question. Well, I can tell you straight up, in all the, and I would imagine in my business, I probably canceled personally over a thousand people, right. just as business folks. And the one thing that I've realized is no matter what you look at, when somebody has a plan that they're not working, when someone has a desire to grow and they're not growing, when somebody has a relationship that they want to improve but they're not improving it, when somebody wants to show up in the world differently but they're choosing not to do it, it comes down to one clear thing. Do they – understand the hidden fear now here's what's interesting Adam there's always a hidden fear fear beneath the surface so if you say hey I want to build my business but I'm only willing to make 10 prospecting calls rather than 20 prospecting calls what you're really saying is I'm 50 percent afraid that I'm gonna fail or I'm gonna succeed if you can have a conversation with yourself where you really get to the the core issue what is the fear that I'm holding that's preventing the action, the fear that I'm holding that's preventing the attitude or preventing the the interaction, if you will, the fear is what drives our mediocrity. Does that make sense?
0: It does. It's interesting because as I've been growing as a manager and as a broker you know, over the years, if someone would come to me and I'm like, hey, why, why haven't you done any real estate deals? And they say, oh, because I don't have any business cards. My first reaction is, well, here's a few of mine. You know, we can scratch out my name and write your name on them. Great. Now you're going to go sell, right? And then they don't. Right. And that's 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 the thing that's crazy to me is that it's not about the business cards or whatever. Like you're saying, it's deeper. Yeah. It's yeah. a fear or there's something, right? Right. right. Well, is you it know, always fear.
1: I I think it's I think fears on on one level but I think there's a sub level that you can even go to that's that's more significant and when you really look at how people live in the world how many people do you know actually get out of bed every day and feel great about who they are confident about their work thankful and grateful for their abilities and their skills they're celebrating their own unique gift and they use that unique gift to make the world better there aren't a lot of people that do that And I don't care what industry you're in right Because here's what I know. It takes a certain level of confidence to believe that you deserve success. Now, get your head around this, okay? Mm -hmm. How many agents have we met who say, oh, I don't have enough business cards, or I haven't made enough appointments, or I haven't done this, or I haven't done that, or my business. Avoiding for something. They're avoiding for something. And I believe, fundamentally, that avoidance is because they don't feel very good about who they are deep down inside. Sure, there's a superficial fear, but deeper, on on a much more profound level, they don't believe they deserve success. So they have a narrative that says that they should show up small or that they are insignificant in the world or they live with compare and despair where they're constantly thinking about how they... are metriced against someone else and mm-hmm. the truth of the matter is that we have one decision that is to determine the success that we want and to make it happen and here's the thing I don't care who's standing in the way or who you thinks in the way or who's even on the same road with you the truth of the matter is you're gonna choose success or someone else is going to and it really has nothing to do with anybody else so let me tie a bow around on all this for Please. you I think that if people can can look at those things that they're throwing up as roadblocks. And then the second step of that is to say, okay, I've thrown up a roadblock. What's the underlying core fear beneath that roadblock? Mm-hmm. And then to take it a step deeper and say, how do I really feel about myself in in relation to this task or to this job or to this opportunity? And if you're coming at things from an insecure perspective, you won't ever have the success that you need. So it's about showing up big, it's about showing up bold, it's about faking it till you make it sometimes, and it's about being the person that knows that you have a gift, a purpose, a mission and a value to this to this world, to this life that you're living, and you better just show up and do it. Here's the bottom line. Can I get bold? Can I get bold for Let's just be one bold. second? Here's the bottom line. When I see people that are kind of halfway doing life, they're choosing to halfway do life because they don't believe they deserve a fantastic life. So I want you to get your head around the idea that if you showed up every day and you said, I deserve a life that is insurmountably bigger than I can even imagine, what would be different? Now, that's the charge, okay? Okay? If you think about how you're uh, defeated in certain areas or discouraged in others or want success in other areas, and you simply say to yourself, what can I do different to make that success happen? And then you lean in as fast and as hard as you can, and you drive. Sometimes we have to fake it a little bit, but when we show up, we show up big.
0: I love it. I tell you what, I could sit here and talk to you for another 10 days probably well, let's, yeah we might need to do that <laughs> we might need to make yeah. a whole new podcast <laughs> but I won't keep you anymore I know you've got an appointment and I appreciate your time so thank you very much okay thanks guys have a good day we'll have you back if you guys have questions for Trey submit them and we'll have them on a future podcast so next up I'm gonna bring in John Charlton so we can talk a little bit about lending stuff and then I'll give you the updates on what we'll talk about next week and we'll wrap it up All right. Up next, we've got John Charlton here with Midwest Mortgage Capital. As you know, John Charlton is our money man. He's our money guy. When I've got money questions, I call John. And John, tell me a little story this week about saving money. That's what I want to know about. What have you been up to?
2: Well, I wanted to tell you a specific story about a friend of mine, Matt Green, a um, guy that I've known for quite a few years. Get Played specific. Together, I like it. This and that. Hi, yeah. Matt. Hey, Matt. What's going on? Um, but... The story that I wanted to tell you is, is that a lot of times people think about saving money just in terms of, you know, can I lower my monthly payment? This is a situation where we're talking about saving a ton of money over the life of a loan. So Matt had a 30-year mortgage that he'd gotten in 2009. Um, he was concerned about his equity position, concerned about the amount of interest that he was paying, and we decided to go ahead and get an appraisal done, take a look at doing a 15-year mortgage. Um, and... Basically this is a house once again that he bought in 09 so he's about 4 years, 5 years into the mortgage. Um, you know, he was paying over 5% on his 30-year rate. We were able to put him into a 15-year mortgage, lower his interest rate to 3.375 on a 15 year and that only increased his payment by about 30 bucks a month. So his payment so went up. His payment went up. So but where is he saving money? He's yeah. saving an immense amount of money in interest. So he was up like somewhere around five and a half percent on his 30 year mortgage. He's dropping that to three point three seven five cuts 10 years off the loan, drops the interest rate significantly. He's going to improve his equity position a ton here in the next couple of years so that when he and his his uh, future wife, since he's engaged, um, decide to go buy their dream home they're gonna have a nice asset there to sell or to rent or to do whatever they want with.
0: Okay, so it doesn't have to be a story of you just save somebody $300 a month, but you put them into another 30-year mortgage or whatever. Correct. This is a case where he's paying a little bit more a month, but you're saying his principal is going down drastically every month as he every makes his month.
2: payments. Every month, and having a 15 year mortgage, because I'm privy to this because I have one myself, it's a game changer as far as making mortgage payments. Because most of us that have a 30 year mortgage, we look at our, we don't even look at our more, you know, our balance each month because it's kind of depressing. It's like you're paying a bunch of interest, just a little bit of principal. And that loan really isn't going anywhere. A 15-year mortgage flips out on its head. You're paying a ton of principal down each month, and it just it looks good. And you want to look at your statement each month because you're just excited about how much you're dropping your principal each is month.
0: Is he planning on living in that house for a few more years?
2: I, I think he said he probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about five more years. His break even actually on the loan is super Quick, because of the low closing cost structure that we selected. He's basically breaking even on the loan in, in less than six months. So after that, it's all candy.
0: So if he would have said, hey, I'm gonna live in this house for one more year, you might have said, let's not even bother refinancing you?
2: No, actually, you know, people would be surprised. There's ways in which I can structure a loan where a person doesn't have any closing costs. If I can save you money and have zero closing costs, then there's zero reason not to do that loan. Even if you're going to sell in a year,
0: and just sell in a year. If he mm-hmm. would have said, "Hey, I'm going to live here another ten years," would you have still done the same loan? That I you think did for so him? because he could
2: afford it. You know, it was basically his payment he was already making. You know, dropping ten years off the off the, the length of the loan, and uh, and ultimately, you know, being without a mortgage is pretty sweet too. Um, most of us don't get to that point until we're old. You know, he could be a 40 year old guy with no mortgage if he wanted to be.
0: That's great. So, when he calls me in five or six years to sell, or when he calls the Herman London Real Estate Group in beautiful downtown Maplewood, Missouri to sell, he's going to have a whole lot more equity, is what you're trying to tell he's me. He's
2: going to have a whole lot more equity, and it's not really costing him more on a monthly basis. I mean, yes, it's costing him $30 more a month,
0: uh-huh. but
2: for that $30 more a month, he's getting basically $250 in additional drop in his principal Principal reduction Mm
0: -hmm. that's good to know i'm always trying to figure out what people owe on their mortgages when i look on the tax records when i look in our realist system and see oh they got a mortgage for two hundred thousand in 2010 i'm always kind of like oh so four years ago they owed 200 they probably owe one ninety six now or something. You know, your mortgage doesn't sure. go down by that much. Doesn't go down that much if you're in a thirty year.
2: year. But if you're in a fifteen year, it goes down. You faster. might be down twenty grand, might be more. And that explains and, it. And something I would say is that it's always good coaching for somebody you know who's going to be upgrading their home to have them have a look at a fifteen year mortgage because the last thing you want is to have somebody who cannot you know move because they basically are in a position where if they sold their house they'd lose money you know this and that you know it may be that the that, that that's that would be the case if this guy stays in a 30-year mortgage but if you in a 15-year he's building equity each month he's going to be in a great position when when he does want to move
0: so, can i ask you a zinger go for it okay so this is sort of not on the topic of what we we're talking about but it is on the topic of money you know, a few years ago, the government had that thing where, I guess, when you bought a new house, you were getting something like a $5,000 forgivable loan or an $8,000 this or that. A couple of years ago, they had these programs.
2: $8,000 tax credit, which actually you had to repay, which nobody knew at the time. But and yes. they had
0: three or four of them that kind of changed over the couple-year period. That's why I'm sort of being vague about them. I guess a lot of right. different people got a lot of different programs. Sure. Sure. Is that causing people to not be able to refinance right now?
2: No, the, none of that would, would matter. There's no there's no loan that you can't refinance out of because of a tax credit that you got. Um, you know, there's nothing like that.
0: Do they have to pay those off to refinance? You know,
2: specifically if you're talking about the 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 main program that they rolled out well, it was a couple years ago is for one year. They basically gave everybody an eight thousand dollar credit tax credit to buy a home. So basically a free eight grand is the way it was advertised by the government, but in reality you're repaying that when you do your taxes each year and it doesn't have really anything to do with um, your ability to refinance or to sell the property. It's not a a tax lien or anything like that, it's just something straight with the IRS. I've
0: talked to a fair amount of people who got one of those programs, whether it's the $5,000 one, the $8,000 one, the, the this or that one. And I think they sort of feel stuck in their home, mm-hmm. and they they want to turn it into a rental, but they can't, or they want to move, but they can't, or they want to sell, but they can't, or whatever. And I guess before they just assume that they're stuck, maybe they should give me or you a call, and we can figure that out because yeah, they absolutely. might not be so stuck, right?
2: Yeah, and and I mean, there's all kinds of of misinformation that's put out there. You know, I mean, a lot of banks do it. A lot of you know. People do it to themselves because they think they understand something that maybe they don't. I mean, the best thing always is to get with a professional so they can have a look at what you have and and see how best to help you.
0: John, how much does it cost to call you? Zero. Really? What's your phone number?
2: Three one four seven four four seven eight five one.
0: Why don't we just go ahead and go over your NMLS number?
2: It's one eight eight nine one zero. Thanks for
0: mentioning that. <laughs> yeah, memorized. Nice. All right, John, thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And stay tuned in the next podcast. We're going to have a couple more guests. We're going to have Darren Hafkin on, and he's going to talk about investing. And he's kind of a guru. He travels around and teaches classes, so I'm excited to have him in. And we'll have a couple more rants, a couple more lessons learned, a couple more deals of the week. And thanks again to Joey Vosovich, our producer, for putting this all together for us. We really appreciate you, Joey, and take care.